according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. We are dealing with the first four verses of uh, this chapter, which take us into some very deep areas, almost like the first four verses of chapter 1 take us into some very deep areas. We're going to be discussing, um, again, the word spoken through angels, as we dealt with last week in, uh, in, in that, and then I want to move on into how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. And we have our application, what happens with gospel neglect? What happens if we do not live our lives in accordance with the grace that has saved us? And uh, the consequences are dire, and they are painted in those terms uh, for a reason. And so we're going to teach this as the text itself presents itself in a very dire way. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to call upon God and His faithfulness to open our eyes, to teach us the deep things, even the deep things of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, once again, it is our good pleasure, it is our blessing to assemble today for your good pleasure, Father. We thank you for the Word of God and the provision that you've made in your faithfulness for a lampstand as the Word of God goes forth, line upon line, precept upon precept, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So Father, we are here this morning to present ourselves approved unto you, workmen needing not to be ashamed. So Father, open the eyes of our understanding, make clear to each one of us not only what this text means, but what is expected. How do we apply it? How, do, how does this text transform us into the image and glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray? Amen. All right, we want to be clear as far as last week is concerned. And it was a tough class last week, and it led to a lengthy uh, question and answer time Wednesday night, and so we're thankful for that as well. But we want to understand, in fact, I should put my chart back up here again, that, uh, that there was a world before our world. There was the world that was. And so in, in, the, in the unfolding of time, we understand this, that you and I are in the dimension of time, and God created that dimension. There used to not be that dimension of time. There was just eternity past where all there was was God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity that always existed from all eternity past. But then in what we call Alpha, in the stewardship of Alpha, God then began to formulate the, uh, the divine decrees and began to speak forth the creation. And so we have the creative ages, followed by, of course, time itself. So there's the world that was, the present world, and the coming world. And that's the big picture. The world that was, the present world, and the coming world, all right? And when we study eschatology, we study eschatology in two phases. There is the millennium that's going to take place on this earth, and then there's the new heavens and the new earth to follow, the dispensation of the fullness of times that takes place after the thousand years, all right? And so those are distinctions to be found. We have the world that was, the world that is, and the world that is to come. And we're very quickly headed for verse 5 of chapter 2 that says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And so in case you got lost along the way in chapter 1 or the first four verses of chapter 2, understand we're talking about the world to come. We're talking about how God is working out a plan whereby his son will be glorified for all eternity. That's the plan of God. It's not in us. It's in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of the Father's plan. And so the world that was, the world that the angels lived in, the world that the angels destroyed, this world was destroyed by water, and this world was destroyed in the tohu wabohu judgment of Genesis 1-2, the world that was. And that's going to come up again and again, I think, in the unfolding not only of Hebrews, but in our eschatology studies coming up. We've got this coming up in the book of Ephesians. There's a lot of, of this in, uh, in Ephesians. And so stay tuned. You'll get a fair amount of it this morning, but just stay tuned for a more complete study. 
All right, so that's the world that was, the world that is, and the world to come. And so last week we were in verse 2 and verse 3a as we spoke about the word spoken through angels. There was a day back in the angelic realm when they had to give their word. They had to declare if they were going to serve God or if they were going to follow after Satan in that rebellion. And the word they gave proved unalterable. It was a fixed word. As it says here, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. There's no coming back. The fallen angels cannot uh, get saved. Uh, Jesus didn't die on the angel cross to reconcile fallen angels. The Son of Man died on a human cross and He reconciled humanity. Understand the difference? And so theirs was a one-way street when they gave their word. The word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. The fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels, and it is a just penalty. They will occupy that lake of fire for all eternity as the consequences of what they have earned and deserved. You and I, on the other hand, are saved by grace. We don't operate on an earned or deserved basis. We actually were fallen creatures when we were born. And then by the grace of God, we are made alive in Christ. And so this is the grace-redeemed way of life. And in contrast to the angels, how will we escape? That's what's being asked here. If we defy the grace that saves us, what is our consequence? What will the Father, how will the Father deal with us? Because we know how He dealt with them. How will He deal with us if we neglect so great a salvation? So that becomes the impact of not only this warning, there are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews and they're all dire and they scare some people. People get all worked up over things because on a surface level it appears in some cases that Hebrews teaches you can lose your salvation. All right, And we're going to be very careful about it so no one here falls for that. Nobody in this ministry is going to get all worked up about losing salvation. Because the, uh, that's unthinkable. That's not even, that's nowhere in the context of, of these passages. But the, the warnings that are given are dire to the point that they use language that approaches that. And it does so to get our attention and to show us how serious that is. And, uh, and I hope that makes sense. We'll, we'll spell that out as we work our way through these five warning passages. The one here is only the first out of those five. And so, We gave you some points of study about Satan and his fall and how it began in his heart and then he spoke the words aloud, the five I wills of Isaiah 14 and the word spoken, not thought about, not in the heart, but spoken proved unalterable. And this is what happens when his tail sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven. Every fallen angel made that declaration. Every fallen angel fell for their own sake. Let's understand that the angelic fall was not a corporate fall of angels. It was an individual fall of every single fallen angel. All right? And if that's not important to you today, that's okay. Just think about it, write it down, ponder it. There will come a day that you're going to see the dimensions of this and the depths of this, and you're going to realize why this becomes significant. You and I are corporately fallen in Adam. That's the nature of being born in in humanity, that God judged Adam and God judged all of Adamic humanity. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Because you and I were in Adam as Adam sinned. Understand that? So the wages of sin is death. Sin singular, Adam sin. Through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin for all sinned. We all were sharers in that sin. God in His grace judged all of Adamic humanity. Not just Adam the person. All of Adamic humanity was judged, which is why Eve's eyes were open. Okay, Eve was taken out of Adam. Remember? All right. Whereas the fallen angels are not that way. The fallen angels are not a, 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 a hierarchy. They're not, well, they're a hierarchy, but they're not a lineage. They're not, uh, there aren't angel babies. They're not children in Satan. Okay? Every fallen angel that fell was created the same time Satan was created, the same time Michael and Gabriel were created. All of the heavenly hosts were created, as far as we know, on the same day at the same moment when God spoke and brought the universe into beings and then He populated the heavenly host. All right? And so 
Every angel has the same, not birthday, but creation day, as uh, from the day you were created. All right? And then a third of them fell. A third of them followed in Satan's tail, followed in his rebellion. But when they did so, they did so based on their own choice. Okay? Their own choice. That's a different estate than humanity. You didn't choose to eat the, the, the fruit that Adam ate. But nevertheless, you are guilty in Adam in that consequence, all right? So this is uh, maybe not important to you today, but there will come a day that some of this uh, theology will, uh, will come alive. Um, each fallen angel was individually guilty, individually justly recompensed in contrast to humanity being corporately guilty and humanity being afforded a grace provision for corporate redemption. All right, when we sing redemption, we sing a song the angels cannot sing. The heavenly hosts are singing today, but when redeemed humanity starts singing our redemption chorus, they have to fold their wings, right? They cannot sing the song that we sing in our redemption. All right, so humanity ought to observe we ought to observe such eternal consequences and not neglect, that is not drift. We should not neglect the grace redemption way of life. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The fact that God is so gracious and God is so merciful and that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God the Son went to the cross and died so that you and I could have eternal life. We're going to neglect that? How dare we? How dare we? It's unthinkable when we see everything God has done for humanity. He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to humanity, particularly in those that respond by faith, becoming children of Abraham by faith. We'll have more to say on that when we get down to verse 16. Uh, Hebrews 2.16 says, For assuredly He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. And so by faith, when humanity accepts the, the work of Jesus Christ, we become sons of Abraham, and that's we appropriate that grace to our own eternal life. A redeemed people ought to walk in a manner worthy of God and pleasing to Him. And last week we closed with this. We closed with Colossians 1, verses 10 through 12. We had a couple of other points as well beyond that. Uh, but understand a redeemed people, this is a redeemed way of life. We should walk this way, not to earn it, not to deserve it, not to try to get something, but because we've already gotten something. We've already been saved. We've already been redeemed. See, this becomes our uh, our pattern. If, um, if I might, I would even add to this Second uh, Peter, my text I like to use as a call to worship. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, okay, and, and this comes in a context of judgment, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. You understand that? Don't get all panicky over Al Gore's global warming hysteria. This is the intergalactic universal warming hysteria right here that we should be worried about. The heavens and the earth are slated for destruction. The righteous and wrathful God of the universe will bring it to an end. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now take that threat for what it is. That threat is a real threat, not because you're going to be subject to that wrath. You're not going to be a part of that destruction. But in the, in the light of the grace of God that brought you out of that, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The truth is, is that this heaven and earth are going to be destroyed. The new heaven and new earth are on the way, but you and I are already here. You and I are already the new creation in Christ. See, you ever think about that? Okay, and this I'm totally off script now, but, but <laughs> think with me here, okay? This is the first time God has ever done this. 
Always before, he created the universe and the heavens, and then he populated with heavenly hosts. He created oceans, and he put fish in there. He created dry ground, he put animals on there. Created the air and put birds in there to start flying. God has always, always, always created the realm, the habitat, the environment, and then populated it with creatures suitable to that environment. But now, what has he done in the church? He has created the new creation already, you and me. You and I are already suited for an environment that's not here yet. You and I are a new creation in Christ. We are already prepared to enter into that new creation. When this heaven and earth is destroyed by fire, and when the new heavens and earth are created, you and I are already suited as the new creation in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? You ever think about that? God has never done that before. This is unique in the history of the plan of God. For the bride of Christ to be conformed to His image. What a glory. And so, since He's done all that, how then shall we now live? What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The rhetorical question leaves you and me to answer that for ourselves. I want to be like Him. I want to walk like Him. I want to talk like Him. I want to think like Him. I want to be like Him. Because that's what I'm created to be. So, keep that in mind as well. Now, most of the commentaries take this as Mosaic law, not an angelic declaration. So I'm going to skip through that. Talked about that last week. And the logic is is so flawed anyway. The idea that, well, the law was given through angels, but the New Testament gospel is given by Jesus, so this is better than that. That's, that's stupid, okay? Because first of all, angels didn't give the law, God did. Yahweh spoke to Moses face to face and gave him the law. It was not given by angels at all. Um, and then secondly, that was not a salvation message at, at, at Sinai. Mosaic law was not a gospel unto eternal life. It was never intended to be. And it was not given as such. We don't say that uh, there aren't two salvations anyway. Are you kidding me? We've never taught that. Dispensationalists have never taught that. Little Jewish kids in the Old Testament didn't get saved by keeping the law. Nobody got saved by keeping the law. Which is why God came in the flesh to free us from the law. So there aren't two salvations anyway. That We have the same gospel that Adam and Eve were given when he clothed them with animal skins. The seed of the woman gospel is the same gospel that you and I preach. We want to be clear on that as well. The seed of the woman gospel provided for the same salvation as the gospel we preach today. All right, now that gets us to this next section here. How then shall we escape? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now, no question, when Jesus Christ came, we have all new glory being revealed. And when Jesus Christ departed... He went and was seated at the Father's right hand. And we have then ushered in, we have a new age that this world has never seen. You and I live in that age, the church age, and we take it for granted because we've been in it all our lives. We don't know anything other than the church age. And so I think sometimes we lose sight of the things we have that they didn't used to have in the Old Testament time. All right? And how something now is new because of the finished work of Christ. We preach the same gospel, but now you and I get to preach it from the perspective of a past completed action. Make sense? Understand that? How hard would it be for you to preach the gospel if Jesus hasn't come and died on the cross yet? (laughs) Okay? You say, oh, pastor, I'm already intimidated. I don't like giving the gospel. Relax, all right? Give the gospel as often as you can, but when you do, think how easy it is Because it's done. It's finished. Tetelestai. Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. He's seated at the Father's right hand. You know, if you think it's hard now to give the gospel, imagine what it was like in the Old Testament. Messiah will come someday. He will crush the serpent's head. He will deliver us from our sins. He will answer all our questions. He will bring in the kingdom. In fact, the kingdom part was the most popular part of all. The forgiving of sins part, they kind of minimize that. All right. So try being an Old Testament evangelist. 
Things are now different with Christ resurrected and seated. And he told the disciples that. And he says, to your advantage that I go away. Because when I am seated at the Father's right hand, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And the church age is going to be unlike anything this world has ever seen. So, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. All right, and so there is spoken through the Lord. And we've got language that's like the word spoken through angels. And here we have the Lord. And, and what's the message He delivers in His first advent? And what's the message He delivers when He ascended? So let's take a moment to consider how was the grace redemption way of life preached? All right, I'm, I'm coining a new term here. I'm trying to get away from Well, if you're familiar with uh, Baraka Church and Colonel Themes terminology, he would talk about the Christian way of life. All right, And I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I can preach the Christian way of life. But it was different before Christ. It was different in the Old Testament. They didn't know about Jesus yet. They didn't know some of the specifics that you and I know. Nevertheless, they preached a grace redemption way of life. All right? The grace redemption way of life was preached. And before Christ, it was preached as an expectation for what Messiah would accomplish in the future. It was preached as an expectation of what Messiah would accomplish in the future. And so you're not going to sit down with somebody and explain to them, you know what? Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Because until Psalm 22 was written, they had no idea it was going to be a crucifixion. They didn't know. They knew that Messiah was coming. They knew that he was going to crush the serpent's head. But not until David wrote Psalm 22 did they have a scripture that said, they pierced my hands and my feet. Prior to, to Psalm 22, they didn't know about crucifixion. That crucifixion was not even known in the ancient world until the Persians invented it and then the Romans perfected it. But... Uh, David wrote about it in a thousand years before Christ in Psalm 22. It's a beautiful thing. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Are you familiar with this? You know, they, they could preach about the forgiveness of sin. They could preach about redemption. They could pre preach about resurrection. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. He had a future resurrection on this earth that he was looking forward to. Psalm 32 how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Very important. In the Old Testament, sin atonement meant covering. Yesterday was the Day of Atonement, if you follow the Jewish calendar. Atonement means covering. Kafar is a covering. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and who, in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. You ever get caught up in carnality and then decide to delay your confession because you're just having so much fun? All right, don't answer that. We all do, okay? So if you, if you tried to answer no just now, you're lying and just save yourself. That, but confess as soon as you can, as soon as you're convicted, as soon as you recognize, you know what, I shouldn't be in carnality and you've got that conviction, confess right there. Don't uh, defer that. That's hardness of heart. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. The longer you delay, the heavier that hand becomes. God is so faithful. <laughs> then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. All right, so there it is. There's Old Testament right there. Salvation, confession, forgiveness, all the blessings. What we would teach today in the church age, David was teaching it in the Old Testament. But it's an anticipation of what was going to happen, what the Lord would do someday. An expectation for what Messiah, it's the Hebrew word for Christ, what Messiah would accomplish in the future. By the way, this is, this becomes a point of theology in Romans 3.25. The fact that God has to prove that He was just in passing over their sins. That He was just in looking forward to what the Christ would do. That's Romans 3.25. 
Are you familiar with this? Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. See, God is a God that puts things on display. And He makes His case. And He lays everything out there. And He promises it ahead of time. Witnessing by the law and the prophets. Promising what the Redeemer would do someday. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Notice now. Whom God displayed publicly. Why was the cross public? Why was the resurrection public? Why was the ascension? All of this was on display to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. You spot that? There's a lot of doctrine in this verse. and We taught this in the Roman series. And, and, but it's, it gets deep and sometimes we don't pay attention. That He had passed over in not judging, not condemning, not destroying, passing over and covering the sin. When I see the sin, I will, when I see the blood, I will pass over, right? That was what Passover was all about. He sees the blood, so he passes over. He's looking forward. God's looking forward to the cross. So he's passing over sins previously committed. So this is why we have Abraham's bosom. This is why we have Sheol. This is why in the Old Testament, believers didn't die and go to heaven. This is why they died and went to Abraham's bosom. Their sins were not yet removed. Their sins were covered. They were forgiven. They were saved. They have eternal life. But the sin of the world is not removed until the Lamb of God died on the cross. Okay? And then with Jesus Christ in victory, He comes from the grave. He brings captivity with Him. He's able to take paradise to the third heaven. When He was on the cross, He told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. That's Abraham's bosom in Sheol. But when Paul ascended to paradise, that was in the third heaven. Okay? All right. So before Christ, the grace redemption way of life was preached, but it was preached as an expectation for what Messiah would accomplish in the future. When Christ was alive during his first advent incarnation, he preached it. The grace redemption way of life was preached by Christ as an hour is coming and now is. An hour is coming and now is. When he was preaching to Jews and Gentiles alike, when he was preaching that it was the concept of his imminency, of his presence, that the Savior was standing in their midst. Not only is an hour coming, but it now is. So they've been waiting all this time for seed of the woman. Seed of the woman was standing right there in front of them, preaching this. John 4, 23. And like the woman at the well, a great Sunday to sing that song. Thank you so much. John 4.23 Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. As verse 21 is an hour is coming. But in verse 23, an hour is coming and now is. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. An hour is coming and now is. Jesus Christ was standing before them. It's not shadows and doctrines and animal ritual and looking forward. It is looking at the provision right there. The seed of the woman is right there. He is the Christ. God is spirit. Those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. That's how they got saved in the Old Testament. Believing in Christ for eternal life, like you and I believe in Christ for eternal life. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am speaking who speak to you, I am. Wow, what a testimony. <laughs> so does this woman get saved a second time? How does this happen? 
Okay? No, she's saved already. She's been saved already. But now she has the privilege of being ushered into the reality of identifying the person of Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, John chapter 8. What did he say? What was this provision? It's us with his abundant life. John 8, 31, 32, 36. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. He's talking to believers, right? In verse 30, he spoke these things. Many came to believe in him. So he's talking to believers. Believers need to be set free experientially. Believers need to be walking this abundant life in Christ, this abundant grace redemption way of life. Jesus was preaching this. And uh, verse 36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Okay? The law didn't give them freedom. Okay? The law was enslaving, but grace gives freedom. So before Christ, the grace redemption way of life was preached as an expectation for what Messiah would do. Uh, by Christ, the grace redemption way of life was preached as an hour is coming and now is. And then by the apostles and recorded in the New Testament, the grace redemption way of life was preached as an application for what Christ has accomplished on the cross. The grace redemption way of life is now preached to this day. You and I preach it today. I'm preaching it this morning. The grace redemption way of life is preached as an application for what Christ accomplished on the cross. We walk our Christian walk because He walked His. We, bear, we take up our cross because He took up His. Our grace redemption way of life is an application of what Christ accomplished on the cross. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. There's a lot of text you can use for this, but I like 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. The grace redemption way of life is because of what he accomplished. Okay? We're not a bunch of goody two-shoes trying to make God happy or trying to earn salvation. No. We have this walk because we have salvation. We have been redeemed. He has done that work. We now live it out in an application. We live it out in a grace response. We should be wiping our feet with, his, with our hair, wetting the, His feet with our tears. We should be loving Him like that woman did when she was wiping Jesus' feet, because we've been forgiven so much, we should love all the more. This is the grace redemption way of life. And so the author of Hebrews, interestingly enough now, the author of Hebrews says he was not among those who first heard. Because he talks about these signs of a true apostle. After it was the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. These signs of an apostle provided the credentials for ministry in Scripture. This doesn't happen today. This happened in the first century. This happened as the apostles were writing the New Testament. This was God's credentials. You know when, when a police officer pulls you over and you want to see the police officer's credentials, he's wearing his badge or he's not wearing it, he's got to display it or you got to, he's got to provide it if you ask for his ID. Because if he's not a real police officer, why, why is he pulling me over? Why is he detaining me? What's your authority to, to, to detain me? And if you don't have that authority, then go away, take a hike, I'm done. Okay? So show me your credentials. Oh, okay, you are a police officer. Yes, sir, what can I do for you? <laughs> All right. Um, the credentials for a true apostle were these signs and miracles. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. It was confirmed to us. We didn't hear it. We were not original apostles, but the apostles went forth with this message. And God provided their credentials. 
2 Corinthians 12, 12. Which is why today the, the, when the Pentecostals want to try to boast in their signs and wonders and the gee whiz of, of what they think they're doing, I like to go to this text here and have some questions for them. The, um, Paul says, you know, I'm not, I'm not a chump. I'm a real apostle. <laughs> if I become foolish, you yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been com- commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. This, and the, the word inferior is a part of the hysterical study from yesterday, by the way. Um, even though uh, I'm not inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself do not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. And that's his message to Corinth. They had every spiritual gift. They had observed all these miracles. They, had, they were founded by an apostle. They had all these things going for them. The only thing he withheld from them was demanding the money that other apostles were, were demanding. And he says, look, I, I, I operate on a grace basis. Aspects there. Anyway, that's the signs of an apostle. And you know, the author of Hebrews, he disclaims a personal call from Jesus. He says he was not. He includes himself with his readers. It was confirmed to us by those who heard, by me and by you, the readers uh, likewise. His audience likewise received their gospel from, uh, from the apostles. And so uh, we have that there. Remember, this was a requirement. To be an apostle, you had to be a witness of the resurrected Lord. 1 Corinthians 9.1, which includes Barnabas, by the way. So uh, I think when you combine 1 Corinthians 9.1 and Hebrews 2.3, you can prove that Barnabas was not the author of Hebrews. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And he goes on, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? And so you look at that text and this becomes, uh, becomes foundational for your study on the first century apostles. And, uh, and it's proof text for Barnabas as an apostle. It's proof text for the brothers of Jesus as apostles, which is why we know James and Jude. They wrote their books of James and Jude in the New Testament. All right. Back to Hebrews 2 then. So God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. All right, so all of that is, is a run-on sentence. All of that is carried off from how will we escape? Oh, this really comes to the warning uh, from verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift from it. All right, don't lose the warning. The warning is verse 1. 2, 3, and 4 is just added details to the warning of verse 1. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Okay? And that's my exhortation to this flock. My exhortation to any believer, any brother, any sister who's not as hungry today as they used to be back in the day. All right? Whatever that is, whatever appetite you have now. I remember a day that, man, you were taking in doctrine three nights a week, four nights a week. And then it dropped to three, and then it dropped to two, and then it dropped to one. And you survived on one meal a week for a while, and then it very quickly becomes one two weeks out of three, two weeks out of four, two or three weeks a month. But you see how that drifts? It drifts, and, that, and it, uh, it's neglect. It's, so the, uh, the drift is the imperative from verse one, don't drift. We must pay much closer attention. So bind the, uh, bind the ship to the pier. 
pay much closer attention. Just lash that, that ship tightly to the pier and then throw the anchor out to the seabed so that we do not drift away from it. Cling to the Word of God closer and closer. That's what we're called to do in the church age. All right. Then verse 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Why is all this important? Because you and I are getting prepared for the world to come. The bride is being suited to rule with Christ. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. But who is it that's going to judge the world? Who is it that's going to judge angels? Who is it that's going to reign with Christ forever? Well, raise your hand. You and me, the bride of Christ, church age believers, not angels, not Israel. Not Israel will be the first of all the nations, but they will not for eternity, okay? We will reign with Christ. Let's get this straight. Not the millennial saints, not the fullness of time saints. We will reign with Christ. We are baptized into union with Jesus Christ. This is what we're preparing for. And so we don't want to drift here and now when we're preparing for eternity. That's the point. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you were concerned about him. You ever do that? You quote a Bible verse, but you can't remember where it is. So you just say, well, you know, somewhere. It's in the Old Testament. It's in Psalms. <laughs> okay. You start narrowing it down. Um, it's Psalm 8 somewhere. I think it's Psalm 8. Verse 5 or 6. Okay. Then you, oh yeah, that's where it is. What is man that you remember him or son of man that you're concerned about him? And so we, again, we have this exaltation of humanity over angelity, the diminishment of angelity. Angels are presently beings of glory and might and power, but they are headed for an eternal diminishment. You and I are currently beings of dirt and humility and weakness, but we are headed for an eternity of glory. All right. He didn't subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And so you and I, you and I need to uh, pay much closer attention. We must not drift. So what is this world to come? Well, I've already shown you on the diagram. It's not the church. It's not the tribulation. The church is on this earth right now and will be until the rapture. The tribulation after the rapture is on this earth. The millennium after the tribulation is on this earth. Jesus Christ descends to this earth. He lands on the Mount of Olives. He wages war against Antichrist on this earth. He rules from Jerusalem on this earth for a thousand years. But then there is the world to come. Because it's after the millennium then that we have the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not just a thousand years. It's a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. Okay? Don't ever lose sight of that. The millennium is a thousand years of resentment. A thousand years of unbelievers and sinful believers resentful about Jesus being on that throne. And when it's all said and done, they're going to march in a protest called Gog Magog. They're going to demand Satan's release from the abyss and they're going to march on Jerusalem. They're going to demand the abdication of Jesus Christ off his throne. It's a thousand years of feigned obedience. It's a thousand years of grudging subjection. But God didn't promise that every knee will grudgingly. He said every knee will bend, every tongue will confess. And there will be a thousand generations of true obedience. Thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ with no more sickness, no more death, no more sin. The former things have passed away. That's the new heavens and new earth. That's what you and I are looking forward to. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which no more sin, no more death. The first things have passed away in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking forward to. So the world to come is subjected to the final stewardship. 
the final dispensation. Understand, a dispensation is a subjection. A dispensation is God who appoints a steward for the administration of His household. And the angels had been stewards, the Gentiles had been stewards, the Jews have been stewards, and they will be again. The church is presently stewards. As I said, after the church is gone, Israel will resume their stewardship. They will maintain their stewardship through the millennial kingdom in ministering to the Gentiles for those thousand years. But with the destruction of the heavens and the earth, with the institution of all new things, the the stewardship is no longer a Jewish stewardship in the new heavens and new earth. As I said, they still exist. They will eternally be the Jewish nation, the first among all the nations. But their stewardship uh, does not cross over to the new earth. The new earth has a new stewardship, and the stewardship is Jesus Christ. The stewardship is Jesus Christ. It's called the dispensation of the fullness of times. So the world to come is subjected to the final stewardship, that is dispensation of the Father's house. When the dispensation of the fullness of time is centered on Jesus Christ and His bride, it is centered on Jesus Christ and His bride. He's not ruling alone. You know, He didn't have a bride when He came at first advent, did He? But he's got a bride now. He's the father's in the process of preparing that bride now. We're looking forward to that wedding supper. We're looking forward to the feast. But just as our Savior was prepared, so too is the bride being prepared. You and I, he's getting us ready. He's getting us ready for this stewardship coming up. We are a bride that's being made suitable for him. Now we can turn to Ephesians. I'm glad we got time for this this morning. Join me in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll give you a, a summary and things to chew on because uh, we're going to be in Philippians for a while and after that we'll be in Colossians. And then after Colossians, I'm still going to panic and teach Philemon. I'm going to delay Ephesians as long as I can. But we're going to do Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians. We will get to Ephesians. Lord willing and rapture pending. We will get to Ephesians. And the doctrine in Ephesians that centers on all things patriological as the Father exalts the Son. It's the book of Ephesians that gives us the name of this stewardship. (coughs) This was uh, Michael Snyder's favorite Bible passage right here. He went through and he colored his Bible. He colored these words. He wanted every he and him. He wanted every pronoun. He wanted all of this to identify which ones were the Father, which ones were the Son, as he worked this out. This is our position in Christ. Let me just pick up here. Verse 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So the bride of Christ, the church, you and me, Write your name in there. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. There's no planet yet, but in the plan of God, you were selected in Christ. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. That's why we're sons of the Father, not sons of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, brothers and sisters with Christ all of us being sons of the Father. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So Jesus Christ is the Beloved Son. We are the Son's Beloved Bride. He is our Beloved Lord or Bridegroom. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Again, raise your hand. You're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. This is you. Redemption in Him through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. And so the Father has a plan. It has gone since eternity past to center in Jesus Christ and us in Christ. His kind intention which He purposed in Him. 
God the Father's purpose, eternal purpose, is in Christ. And you and I are in Christ. With a view, with a view to a dispensation, all right? And through all these things, God never lost track of what he was doing. Never lost track, right? You ever do something and then you lose track? Of course, you're human. We all do. I'm doing that right now on a rabbit trail. I'm trying to get to a verse and I'm going off doing these other things. God never lost track that what he was headed to was the dispensation of the fullness of time. The summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him. All right, in him. And you start to notice we are included in this. In him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance. Well, he's the heir of all things. What does that leave over for us? Everything. Because we're in him. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Now, about a half hour ago, I told you we weren't first. Old Testament believers have always been getting saved. We were the first to believe in Christ after the resurrection. We are the first to believe in a risen Savior with the completed work of the cross. That's huge. We who were the first to believe in Christ as church-age believer priests would be to the praise of His glory. We're the first fruits. We're the bride. We are the center. We are in Christ as the Father is magnifying Christ. And so what we have now is just a down payment. We get the Holy Spirit today. That's just a pledge. Verse 14, it's a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. All right? So the fullness of time is all about Christ and us in Christ. Notice when we get down to verses 22 and 23, again, it's Christ. Verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. This is my prayer for you. I want Austin Bible Church to know. I want the believers here to know. This is deep doctrine, but I want us to know it. What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What kind of a present is that from the father to the son, this bride that he's given to the son? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Towards us who believe. The power that he brought about when he raised Jesus from the dead, that power is coming to us. All right, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named. You see that there in verse 21? When he accomplished the work of the cross, he was seated at the Father's right hand, far above angels as he inherited a greater name, a more excellent name than they. All of this connects with Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. All of this is vital for us to understand looking forward. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. See, you and I, we've got to know our church age doctrine so we can live it out here and now, but we're being prepared for the age to come. We better get busy here and now. We better pay much closer attention here and now. We better not drift here and now. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. Subjected to us, to Christ and his bride. All judgment has been given to the Son, but we're in the Son. Do you not know that we will judge the world? So, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. We're going to see in Hebrews that hadn't happened yet. We don't see that yet, but we will. And he gave him as head over all things to the church. Not in the church age, in the age to come, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, that's fullness of time. That's not church age. That's fullness of time. We're the body. We're the fullness. He's the filler. But it's the fullness of time when this happens. 
So the world to come is subjected to the final stewardship. That's dispensation. The dispensation of the fullness of time is centered on Jesus Christ and His bride. And it's not only chapter 1. Look at what we have in chapter 2. Verse 7 says, you know, we're raised up with Him, we're seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. By grace you have been saved. So that in the ages to come, not here and now, not in the church age, you say, well, I like being saved now. Of course you do. I do too. But this is just a deposit. This is just an appetizer. So by grace you have been saved, raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. And how many Christians do you know? And I'm I'm talking about Christians who should know better. They love verse 5. They're happy to be saved by grace. Verse 6, eh. I'm seated in heaven, eh. Oh, please. It's bigger than an eh. So that in the ages to come, wow, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace. Let me tell you, I think I've already demonstrated a lot of grace. I've seen grace in ways. I sing grace. I sing amazing grace. And and sometimes amazing doesn't cut it. You and I can testify to the grace of God day and night, but we ain't seen nothing yet. The testimony of greater grace comes in the ages to come. When a completed bride is going to be singing this song of grace. We've never had a completed bride. Most of the bride's in heaven right now. The, The last generation of bride is still here, but most of the bride is in heaven. 20 centuries of brides already in heaven right now. No, there is a lot of grace to sing. And it's in the ages to come. So pay attention to that. Chapters 2, verse 7, ages to come. Verses 21 and 22. The whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's got to be post-rapture for it to be fulfilled. Because most of those stones have already departed this earth in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and the Spirit. That's the ages to come. Chapter 3 and verse 21. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Notice that? We're put on par with Christ Jesus. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all the generations in, unto the age of the ages forever and ever. Amen. That is a precise reference to the generations of the, of the ages to come, of the thousand generations of the new heavens and new earth. And it's in the church and it's in Christ that the Father will be glorified to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. What He does in the church age, you ain't seen nothing yet according to the power that works within us. In the fullness of times, Just wait and see. Chapter 4 and verse 10. Here uh, Jesus, of course, has descended. He's ascended. He who descended is Himself. He also ascended far above all the heavens. Why? So that He might fill all things. When's the filling going to happen? It's not the here and now. We already saw the the bride is the, is the, the, the fullness of He who fills. It's in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 13 until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We can view that as individuals, but we also have to view that as a completed bride. Until the bride is suited for the Son, we can't go to the wedding feast. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2 and 3, do you not know that we will judge the world? Do you not know we will judge angels? Understand the position of the bride. We are in Christ. This is, uh, this is a powerful thing. Well, goodness. All right, well, we're going to talk. We'll have to stop there. We'll pick up here next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Make myself a note. Start here. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your son. I thank you for the position we have in the bride. Father, we, uh, we want to we wanna be closer. We don't want to drift. We want to learn more. We want to grow more because we want to be more. 
more like him in all we think and all we say and all we do. The Father, I continue to work, develop this text, implant it within our souls, Father, that we uh, can live this life out for your good pleasure, for the glory of your Son. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.